Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time, just first time in a really long time, we're glad to have you, glad to have you back. We hope that you do feel loved and welcomed and wanted and that you make yourself at home here at the Vista. Now, today we are uh, about dead in the middle of our series called The Apocalypse, a study of Revelation. A study where we are, in fact, walking through this wild and weird book known as Revelation. And today we enter that portion of the series that a lot of you have really been looking forward to and a lot of you have really been dreading. Because we hit that portion of the book where things start to get really, really weird. So if you want to go get more coffee, you can. You might need it today. By way of a a brief summary on where we've been so far so we get properly orientated as we start. John the Revelator, the writer of Revelation, he has written this letter. Revelation is first and foremost a letter to the seven churches that were in ancient Asia wherein he is taking them and by proxy us through this vision that he has had on this desert island called Patmos. And the first part of the vision is it's awesome. Uh, We get to see Jesus, his hair as white as wool, his eyes burning like a flame of fire, his voice roaring like the ocean, his hands holding the keys of death in Hades. And then we get this visit to eternity, to the throne room at the center of all reality. And like Jordan just said, it's, it's loud and it's rowdy because all creation is busy celebrating the goodness of the God who was and who is and who is to come. But then we get this... Um, kind of this break in the revelry, right? It's like the record scratches, because there's this, there's this book with seven seals that tells the story of how God is going to translate the misery of history into the joy of eternity. And the only one worthy to break the seal and tell the story is this line of Judah. And so we turn to look and see this line of Judah as it makes this grand entrance. And what we see instead is what? This, this broken and bloodied lamb. Jesus the Messiah. So the lamb takes the book, he opens it, and he begins to tell the story of how God is going to translate the misery and injustice of history into the joyful justice of eternity. If you've got your Bibles, we'll be in Revelation 6. We'll read through all of it, 17 verses, not too long. Revelation 6, 1 through 17, right? What's the story? It's the story how God is going to translate the misery of uh, history into the joy of eternity. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and another horse, a red one, went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Now when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Amen. Now when the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following him. Authority was given over them, over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. Now when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. I looked and when he broke the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as a sackcloth made of hair, which is so gross. The grossest part of Revelation right there. And the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, please hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? Revelation 6, 1 through 17. Now, depending on how exactly you want to count it up, there are around 12 modern Batman movies. Uh, We had the four in the 90s, right? This was kind of when I was growing up, right? The Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, who else? George Clooney, Batman years. This era is probably best known as the era in which we apparently thought it was very, very important for the Batsuit to have nipples. Some of you remember this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a snug suit. Maybe. I, I promise you will not be able to unsee them now. Um, <laughs> by gosh. After this, we had the... Uh, the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. All right, that's probably the one a lot of us remember most fondly. Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. And then we had the, uh, the DC takeover wherein Ben Affleck and his annoyingly perfect chin began to don the cape. And then he passed the cape off to the, uh, the vampire heartthrob guy from Twilight. I can't remember his name. Was it? Robert Pattinson. Yeah, that's him. Who apparently has a thing for playing brooding nocturnal characters. Um, <laughs> And so here's my question. Here's my question. Which one of these movies or sets of movies tells the true story of Batman? Which one? Right? Because like, was the Joker created by Batman when he accidentally knocked him into a vat of chemicals? Like what happened in the original Batman movie with Michael Keaton? Or was the Joker this force of nature from origins unknown, just an agent of chaos who came out of nowhere like Heath Ledger and, and the Dark Knight? Or was the Joker this really traumatized and fragile guy who was abandoned by his father and had a very weird relationship with his mother and danced around in his whitey tidies a lot like in The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix? Um, and then all the movies agree that Bruce Wayne's parents were killed by a mugger, right? You remember that? That's kind of how the whole story gets set in motion. But was the mugger actually the guy who had become the Joker, like in the original Batman? You remember, it's Jack Nicholson who kills Bruce Wayne's parents. Or was the mugger just some nobody criminal, like all the other movies seem to say? And then does Batman's story end with Batman saving Gotham City from a bomb and then retiring to Florence with Catwoman to live happily ever after? Or does Batman's story end with him joining up with the Martian Manhunter and then embarking on future crime-fighting adventures yet to be determined? And then most importantly, does or doesn't the Batsuit have nipples, right? We need to know. Does it or not? We can't go back and forth here. It needs to have them or not have them. And what you're probably intuiting is that my question, get Batman's nipples down, um, 
Batman's, this, this question, right, which one of these tells the true story of Batman, it's, it's a misguided question, right? Because the Batman movies are not meant to be understood as a literal history of Batman, but rather they are these imaginative explorations of the basic story of Batman. And what's the basic story of Batman? We all know it. He's, he's a rich kid, Bruce Wayne. His parents get killed in front of him. And this fuels a desire for justice that results in him donning the cape and fighting for justice in Gotham City. That's the basic story being told over and over again in a lot of different ways over the course of these 12 movies. And we all intuitively understand that we shouldn't get all hung up on these pedantic details like where did the Joker really come from? How does the story really end? And this brings us back to our text for today. Because this is the part of Revelation where a lot of people, man, they wander in and they just, they just get lost in there and they never come out. They spend the rest of their lives reading the left behind books and trying to figure out who the Antichrist is, right? And who's the Antichrist? It's always the most recent president who you didn't vote for. That's who the Antichrist always is. And the main reason people get lost as they wander into this part of Revelation is that they walk into it with a confused set of expectations. Mainly, they go into it thinking that what they're reading is this literal and linear chronology of, of how the world will end. They go into it thinking that they're reading, you know, like God's end of the world daily planner. And so they come in here and they try to make it all fit in a nice, neat, clean timeline. Well, we got the breaking of the seven seals and the seven trumpets. And then Satan's got this war with the angels. And then we got the beast and the mark of the beast. And then Satan's chained in the abyss for a thousand years while the saints reign on earth for a thousand years. And then we get this final battle, yada, yada, yada. It is a lot to try to neatly sort out on a timeline. And Revelation's best and most responsible interpreters have always reminded us that this portion of Revelation, chapter 6 through 20, it's kind of one big unit, it is better read and understood as a spiral than a straight line. Revelation 6 through 20, this will save you or someone you know when you're reading Revelation. It's better read as a spiral in a straight line. And what I mean by that is what we're encountering here in Revelation is the same basic story being told in a lot of different ways and not a mathematically meticulous timeline of the end of history. To return to our Batman example, this portion of Revelation, reading it, is more like watching the Batman movies. And it's less like reading God's end of the world daily planner. And so when you catch yourself or someone you love getting all worked up and obsessed over these details about how the world is going to end according to Revelation. Remember that you're basically being obsessed over whether or not the bat suit has nipples, okay? And I promise this is the last time I'm going to say nipples. I was going for five times, I got it. All right, and so if Revelation uh, 6 to 20 is more a spiral than a straight line, right? it's more us spiraling over and around and through the same basic story. Well, what's the basic story being told here in Revelation 6? They're 20. Good question. So if you got your Bibles, pick them back up. We're going to read the last few verses again. So this will be Revelation 6, 15 through 17. So the very end of the section we just read. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks from the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Please fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? I think honesty demands that we, uh, we just tell the truth about it here, and we can see that this portion of Revelation is it's pretty severe. It's pretty vicious. Like anybody who thinks that God is just some doting, passive grandfather is going to have a heart attack 
reading this portion of the letter. Y'all, my grandfather, he was one of the kindest, most gentle men who's ever walked the face of the earth. We called him Pop. That's what we called my grandfather. They've got a picture up of Pop. Do we have a picture of Pop? Yeah. This is my grandfather in a nutshell. How great is that? So that was Pop. And so Pop just, he didn't have it in him to reprimand us. Man, I remember one time my brother and I were being very, very bad. And he took into my mom, us to my mom, and he said, Jane, these boys need a spanking. They're being awful. My mom said, well, Dad, then why don't you do it? And he paused and he said, well, they weren't being that bad. You know, I mean, <laughs> let's not be crazy here. My grandfather couldn't spank me. He barely had it in him to reprimand me. And the only thing he ever reprimanded me for was not shooting like 100 times a game in every basketball game I ever played. And in this sense, my, my grandfather, God is not like my doting grandfather, your doting grandfather, because Revelation makes it very plain that God does have it in him to reprimand us. And by us, y'all, I mean all of us. Did you notice how indiscriminate the reprimand is there in verse 15? Who's going to get it? The kings of the earth, the strong, the commanders, the great men, the rich men, the people who are allegedly too big to fail, people who are allegedly above it all. They're going to get it. But then who else? The slaves. Nobody will be exempt from what John calls the wrath of the Lamb. And at this point, we've got to talk about something that is not very fun to talk about. But it is a very biblical thing to talk about, and uh, that's wrath. More specifically, the wrath of God. And yet, while wrath is a very biblical thing to talk about, it is very difficult to talk about the wrath of God biblically. And the reason that's so hard for so many of us is that when we think about it, we make the mistake of starting with what we think we know about wrath, and then we apply it to God. So, for example... When most of us think of wrath, we think of what? Anger, rage, usually with a dash of like vengeance and revenge. That's wrath. Obviously, the most recent display of the wrath of God that many of us have seen, the most vivid display of it, was when Luka Doncic scored as many points as the entire Phoenix Suns team in the first half of the Mavs Game 7 demolition of the Suns. I've never seen anything like it. It was unbelievable. Wrath of God. Poured out through Luka Doncic. But, but you get the idea. Wrath is an outpouring of rage and revenge. And so what we do is we go, okay, so like if wrath is an outpouring of rage and revenge, then God's wrath just must be, that's, it's God pouring out his wrath in this act of revenge and vengeance wherein he angrily gives us the punishment that we deserve. And when we formulate our thoughts on God's wrath this way, starting with what we think we know about wrath and then applying it to God, we end up in this really really strange place, don't we? Because on the one hand, we know that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And he forgave the people who were crucifying him while they were crucifying him. Not once they had repented. While they're putting the nails in, Jesus says what? Father, forgive them. While they're putting the nails in, we know that God would rather die than give us what we deserve. That's what the cross teaches us. But then if we also believe that Jesus is going to come back one day, filled with rage and revenge, then we're left with this just, I don't know what word to use except like schizophrenic belief that the Jesus who was slain for all of our sins is going to come back one day to slay at least a lot of us for our sins. That the first coming, right, that was, that was a merciful Jesus. But the second coming, whew, 
That's going to be Rambo Jesus, you know, just mowing down sinners. And so if we want to make sure that we're talking about the wrath of God biblically, then we don't start with what we think we know about wrath and then apply it to God, but rather we start with what we do know about Jesus. And then we formulate our thoughts on wrath accordingly. We ask ourselves a question, something like, what would it mean for Jesus to pour out his wrath on the world that he already loves so much that he has already freely and gladly died for it? What would that look like? What could that be? And the simplest formulation that I can come up with works something like this. God's wrath is an expression of God's justice, which is an expression of God's love. Okay, God's wrath is an expression of God's justice, which is an expression of God's love. So in other words, God is not some angsty, complicated, moody person who's constantly struggling with this internal tug of war in different parts of his personality. Now, sadly, this, this is how a lot of us think of God. Now, we think God's kind. Yeah, I, mean, I, get, I get God's kind, but man, God's also harsh. We think God is merciful, but he's also mean. We think God's loving. Sure, God's loving. We get it, but he's also wrathful. And so which part of God's personality we get is predicated upon God's mood and then our behavior, right? And the overlap of those two things determines which side of the stick we get. And the reason that we think about God this way, the reason we think this is how God acts, the reason we think this is how God is, is because, well, this is how we act, right? This is what we are. We are angsty moody, complicated people who have this constant internal tug of war divided between different parts of our personality and we treat other people accordingly. I mean, I don't know about you, but like if my kids are acting up on, on a Friday night and we have a nice, long, relaxing weekend in front of us, you know, then I'm like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. <laughs> right? My universalist tendencies come out. I'm like, ah, you know, man, it's, it's fine. It's not a big deal. They didn't mean it. They didn't know what they were doing. But if my kids act up on a Monday morning at 730 when I'm trying to get them out the door to school and myself out the door to work, y'all, it is bowls of wrath upon bowls of wrath upon bowls. It's wrath for everybody at that time. And this is how we act. And there are all sorts of complicated theological ways that we could say this. God's, God's simplicity, God's impassibility, God's actus purus is a way to say it in Latin. And the basic idea is that God is never complicated. God is never moody. God is never torn between different parts of his personality. Because God, the only person in the whole universe, is always freely and fully God's self. Always. And the name that we give, that Scripture gives to God's infinite but simple perfection is love. That's the name that we give it. 1 John 1, 5 puts it like this. This is the message that we have heard from him and that we announce to you all that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is not divided in this terrible struggle between light and dark in his heart. No, there's just light. That's all. And we could riff on this for a while, uh, but for our purpose today, let's just note how important it is to note that God's wrath is not the mean part of God's personality that comes out when he's finally fed up with us. 
Rather, God's wrath, it's real, but it's an expression of God's justice. That's God's commitment to set the world right. That's a wonderful thing, which is itself only and always an expression of God's love. Because here's the deal, here's the deal. God loves everyone more than you love anyone. Okay, and it's so obvious once you say it, but the person you hate most on this planet, the person you wish would die, God loves everyone more than you love anyone, more than your child, more than your spouse, more than your grandparent, your name. And so God is incapable of being unloving to anybody. God can't do it. There are things God can't do. God can't be untrue to himself, which means God cannot be unloving to anybody. And so we have to talk about the wrath of God. It's all throughout scripture. But in order to make sure that we're talking about it biblically, we need to be clear that when we talk about the wrath of God, we're merely talking about the love of God by another name. That's all the wrath of God is. It is another name for the love of God. But I've still dodged the issue just a little bit, haven't I? I hope that sounded all very nice. It's all true, but I've still dodged the issue a little bit because we still need at least a little bit of clarity on what exactly the wrath of God looks like. Like, What does it look like in action? As we've tried to honestly concede, man, the wrath of God in Revelation is a severe thing. It's, it's bowls of wrath and something made of hair, which again is the worst part, and it's stars falling from the sky. It's severe stuff. But then we also need to keep in mind the description of the wrath of God that we get from Paul in Romans 1. We went through Romans not too long ago. This portion of Romans is widely considered the most comprehensive explanation of the wrath of God. It's Romans 1, uh, verses 18, 24, 26, 28. It'll be up here. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed or poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What does it look like? Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. So notice that when Paul wants to describe what the wrath of God looks like in action, He does not use language of God vengefully smiting us with the punishment that we deserve. But rather, Paul uses language of what? God reluctantly giving us over to the sin that we desire. Wrath is not about God inflicting the punishment that you deserve. It's about God giving you over to the sin that you desire. Think about it like this. Let's say you're you're walking along on a boat dock. I don't know why. You're in a yacht club. you're walking along on this boat dock and you, you come across this, this stranded fish. This fish was jumped up out of the water and stranded himself. Now you're a good person, you know, you don't want to get in trouble with Peter. So you pick the fish up, throw him back in the water. Done your good deed for the day. But then every subsequent day you walk along the dock, the fish is back there again every day. A hundred days in a row, two hundred days in a row. This fish is doing this. Now I know that nowadays we do not like to label people or, or even animals. But I think eventually you might have to come to the conclusion that this, this is a bad fish. (laughs) And something's going to have to be done. Can't keep throwing him back in. Well, according to the way that some people think about God's wrath, it's like God, you know, God gives this fish, you know, whatever. Man, 900 tries, throws this fish back in. But eventually God has had enough. And so he finally, on that fateful 902nd day, comes up to that fish and he takes a stick and he just... Beats him into sushi, baby, hibachi style. That's God's wrath. Had enough of it. I'm going to give you what you deserve. That's one way to think about it. 
But then according to the way Paul, and, and I think scripture as a whole, talks about God's wrath, it's more like God, you know, God comes up on this fish. Day 902 of this fish jumping out of the water. And God goes, you know, it seems like you really want to be up here and you are not getting the memo that this is bad for you. Throwing you back in the water is not working. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let you stay up here. You want to be up here? You think you belong here? I'm going to let you stay up here. And I'm going to let you bake. And I'm going to let you suffocate in a last-ditch effort to try to help you understand, fish, that you do not belong here. This is not good for you. This thing that you think you want, you do not want it. And so how much of it do I have to give you in order to help you understand that this is not good for you? And so again, God's wrath is what? God's wrath is God handing you over to the sin that you insist on. Not the punishment that God insists on, the sin that you insist upon. That's what God's wrath is. And so now let's finally try to answer this question that we posed earlier. What's the basic story being told in Revelation 6 through Revelation 20 through all this wild imagery and drama? Well, here's my best stab at it. All creation is going to face the wrath of the Lamb. All creation is going to face the wrath of the Lamb. And far from being bad news, y'all, this is the best news that you could hope for. I promise it is. Because it means that God refuses to let sin, your sin, my sin, our sin, have the last word. The Lamb's going to get the last word. That's a good thing. We're going to circle back to that a number of times over the next few weeks. uh, But let's end this morning with this. All creation is going to face the wrath of the Lamb. Everybody, no exceptions. And far from being just a statement about the future, uh, it's, it's a statement about the present. Right here, right now, the wrath of the Lamb is being poured out on creation, on every last one of us. But it can be hard to recognize it at first because we often mistake the wrath of the Lamb with us getting away with our sins. Because notice, what did we just learn? You being allowed to get away with your sin that is the wrath of God. So you think you're getting away with sin. Meanwhile, God's just pouring out his wrath on you because they're one and the same thing. <laughs> because there is no such thing as getting away with sin. Because sin, by its nature, ruins you. That's why it's sin. That's why God doesn't want you to do it. And so a lot of us in here today, maybe most of us, probably all of us in some way, you know, we're, we're under this delusion, I know I am, that We've got this sin in our lives, but we're kind of getting away with it because our lives aren't obviously on fire. You know, we get a little flame pop up here and there, and we're just, you know, nothing to see. It's all fine. I think we're getting away with it because we're selfish and we're self-absorbed and we're status-seeking, you know, but not too many people seem to notice. We're vain and we're, we're addicted to being desired, but... We haven't, we haven't gone full Kardashian, and so not too many people seem to notice, and it does get us some attention. Sure, we're resentful and we're petty, but we're not being prosecuted for it. It helps us get ahead in our jobs, actually, so long as you play your cards right. But y'all, we, we are not getting away with anything. It's not possible. We're not getting away with anything. You know what we're doing? We're, we're sitting up here on this dock, stranded, Grinning from gill to gill like idiots. Thinking we're so clever because we got away with our sin. Meanwhile, what's really happening? 
We're baking and we're suffocating and we're slowly becoming people who suck because that's what sin does to you. That's my technical theological description. Sin turns you into somebody who sucks and that sucks because you're going to have to be yourself forever. You ever thought about that? You're going to have to be yourself forever. No escaping who you've become. But thankfully, the ultimate goal of the wrath of the Lamb, it's not punishment. It's repentance. Like God pours out his wrath on us by giving us over to the sin that we insist on so that we might ultimately learn how to receive the mercy that he insists on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the gift of today. Oh, we, we don't deserve to be here. In your, it's a broken world, but it's a beautiful world that is redeemed and in the process of being fully redeemed. And so we just pause on Sundays and we remember that. We remember who we are and whose we are. And we come before you and, and God, we confess that we are a room full of sinners. Oh, it comes in many different shapes and forms, addictions, vanity, and insecurities and you name it we got it in the room today and a lot of us are under the delusion that we're getting away with it we haven't understood that it's not possible to get away with sin because it's not an arbitrary rule that you laid out for us to break or not break no sin is destructive and that's why it's sin and that's why you ask us not to do it and so God I pray that you would just open our eyes this morning to see the ways in which there is no getting away with sin and you pouring out your wrath on us is ultimately a profound act of mercy it's you reminding us what we were made for and where we belong and so we pray that in these moments you would help us to understand that a little bit more a little bit deeper and that your holy spirit would work in our hearts we pray this in jesus name amen